Esther 9, 1 through 16. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with, with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. The ten sons of Haman and the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, were, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews were, who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend the, their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hand, hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day of which they send gifts of food to one another. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to, uh, to be recipients, uh, beneficiaries, if I might, of, um, of the greatest uh, reversal that this world has ever known. And God, where we uh, see it most clearly um, in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of your son Jesus. And we thank you that, um, that we've been set free from the power of sin and Satan. And we thank you, God, for our hope that we have in you, uh, the God of reversals. 
And I pray, God, that uh, you would uh, help me um, rightly divide your word, to uh, stand behind it. I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified this morning. You'd continue to receive all the glory, the praise, and the honor. And that we would be changed, God, that we would remember the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection. And God, that we wouldn't just recollect, but that we would recalibrate our lives, being reminded of who you are and who it is that you say we are. And so God, please um, just inform us and transform us today for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. So today we're finishing up the book of Esther. We're in uh, uh, episode number seven. I've titled it, um, Remembering the Great Reversal. And um, I love stories of underdogs. I love to, um, to just read, watch movies about people that have overcome. I like books like Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, I like shows like Dude Perfect that are doing things that are just uh, crazy. I love Cinderella stories of all kinds. I naturally root for the underdog. It's just who God's made me to be. I love stories of perseverance and grit. I love stories where the lesser man or the lesser team has prevailed over the greater man or the greater team. I love reversals where it seems that there is a certain downward trajectory and then out of nowhere the direction changes. And we see many of these in sports. Like if you're a sports fan, we've seen that over the years and we like to look back on that and remember, remember the glory days whether we participated or just saw it on TV. Remember the amazing Mets in 1969. In 1967, the Mets had the worst record in baseball. They lost two-thirds of their games. Two years later, they had the best record in baseball. They made it to the World Series, and then they beat the dreaded Baltimore Orioles 4-1. to one. And the Orioles had a team of champions. They had three future Hall of Famers. Anybody a Bronco fan? 1983, John Elway's uh, rookie year where they were down 19 to nothing at the end of the third quarter against the Baltimore Colts. And then Elway out of nowhere scores three touchdowns and they win 21 to 19. In 1990, Mike Tyson was a 42 to one favorite over a no-name fighter named Buster Douglas. The odds makers would not even give odds on it and Buster Douglas knocked him out in the 10th round. Reversals, Cinderella Man. It's one of my favorite movies of all times. It's an amazing movie about a perseverance in the times of the Depression, a dad that would do anything uh, for his kids and for his wife. My mom had a reversal of sorts. My mom, when she was a teenager in the 50s, had a baby uh, out of wedlock. And um, she drove to Kansas City and um, spent the last three months of her life, or of her, of her pregnancy in Kansas City, gave birth to a little girl saw her for about a half a day, and then never saw her again. And she said that every day of her life, my mom said every day of her life, my mom's life, she thought about this baby girl and wondered, is she alive? And, um, and then 58 years later, they connected. And my mom got to go to Kimberly's wedding, first time she'd been married. A reversal, a turnaround. Life is full of reversals. Some of them we want to take credit for because somehow we, our dogged determination or our hard work or our investing, uh, our wise investing somehow made things turn around. But every reversal, every single reversal, I want you to contemplate this, is, is an element or an evidence, is a better word, of God's grace. 
I've had some great reversals in my life. Uh, when I was in college, I was in trouble, and I flew from Greeley, which is where I was at, in college, and I took off for Tempe, Arizona, where I had a, a friend down there, and I had no idea what I was going to do, but I walked into a Christian bookstore in Tempe called Clovatus Bookstores, and I'll never forget, there was a man by the name of Jess Kellerman who asked if he could help me. The next thing I know that I'm in his house twice a week for the next three months, and he's discipling me. Down in Denver, when I was an investment advisor, I was, I was courting a rich man. I wanted to invest his money. Next thing I know, things got flipped. I had a little bit of his money, and he had me sitting in church where I was listening to the Word of God. I was running from my problems in Denver again, only to move to Fort Collins and visit a church that met in a junior high school with a guy with a bald comb-over with an attitude where for the very first time, the gospel started growing deeply into my heart. After that, I lost everything. Everything that I had my identity in. Everything that was good, financially and whatnot. And God used that to allow me to be a pastor that I would have never been if it wasn't for that calamity. My wife, Nancy, experienced a reversal. Her mom, Carolyn, my mother-in-law, was sick and dying. And through her sick and dying moments, she had Nancy read the book of Romans to her. And my wife, Nancy, came to Christ as a result of her mom's sickness and her death. The book of Esther is all about reversals. The grand theme in Esther is reversal. An event intended to destroy the Jews eventuates in the opposite, their salvation. And even though God is not mentioned once, as Ryan said, he's behind the scenes orchestrating every circumstance for the good of his people. Esther was a Jewish girl with a Persian name assimilated into the safety of the secular culture. And then we see her courageously identify with her people at the risk of her life to save her people. Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, was second in charge of the Persian Empire, and he put forth an irrevocable edict that all Jews be killed in one day. He was later humiliated and put to death. Mordecai, on the other hand, who was on death row already, was vindicated and elevated to second in charge in the Persian Empire, where he put into place an irrevocable edict to save the Jewish people. The Jewish people who mourned, wept, and lamented over Haman's edict of destruction rejoiced with gladness and feasting over Mordecai's edict of salvation, a reversal. We saw last week in chapter 8, verse 17, that many so-called enemies of the empire who were going to kill the Jews heard Mordecai's edict of salvation, and they converted to Judaism. They converted to become Jews. Wherever the decree of salvation was heard in the empire, we're told that many people from every tongue, tribe, and nation became part of the covenant people of God. Reversal is not just a theme in your life and the life of Esther, the book of Esther. It's a theme. It's a grand narrative theme of the entire Bible. You were once lost, but now you're found. Once enemies and now friends. Now, at the end of chapter 8, where we finished last week, in the beginning of chapter 9 today, nine months go by. Nine months go by, and we're, we land on the day, the, the 13th day of the 12th month, where the two decrees of Haman and Mordecai collide. And we're going to see that the evil plan for the people of God is fully reversed. And on that appointed day, in the 12th month, 13th day, justice is served, God's people are delivered, 
and celebration ensues. I want to give you a few questions to consider today as you contemplate the reversals in your own life. Number one, how might these reversals cause you to lament and rejoice? Two opposites. How does remembering your, rever your reversals compel you to serve and treat others? And finally, how does remembering your reversals bring peace in times of uncertainty, in times of trial? There's two final scenes in these two chapters, uh, chapter uh, 9, verses 1 through 19, reversal accomplished, and then chapter 9, verse 20 through 10, 3, reversal remembered. Reversal accomplished, verse 1. The irrevocable day of judgment for God's people had arrived when Haman, the enemy of the Jews, decreed that all of God's people in the entire empire be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. When it seems as though the enemies of of, of the Jews would overpower them, the reverse happened. It says in chapter 1, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews killed, it says, all their enemies, all, the, all those who hated them, and sought to kill them. And we see in verses 6 through 10, on the 13th day of the 12th month, that the Jews killed 500 men in the citadel. Remember what the citadel is. The citadel is the inside of the palace. It'd be like in the White House or in the Pentagon. It was, a, it was the heart of the empire. We also see that not only did they kill 500 people in the citadel, they killed Haman's 10 sons. It's important to note that the Jews didn't take the initiative. They defended themselves against their enemies who hated and tried to kill them. Mordecai had told us back in chapter 8, verse 11, to he told the Jews to gather and defend their lives. Don't take the initiative. You're not on the offensive. You're to defend yourself. In the verses 11 through 15 and verse 12, we see that the king, um, learning about 500 men being killed in the citadel and learning about Haman's 10 sons that were killed, he asks Esther if she has any more requests. Kind of odd. He just asked Esther, like, what, you know, honey, what's your, what's your request? And Esther says, well, that we, we want to... Um, I want you to preserve our lives. And now here we have 500 men killed in the citadel. Um, Haman's 10 sons are killed. And, and he goes, honey, like, what else can I do for you? Like, you know, cup of coffee, glass of wine. Like, what do you need? Esther, apparently, knowing that there were more Jew haters in the palace, asked the king if he would extend the edict one more day, allowing the Jews to defend themselves. Oh, and by the way, she says, would you mind taking the dead bodies of Haman's ten sons and impale them? Go ahead and just throw them on the, 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 uh, the stake. This pre pretty sweet Jewish girl asked for another day of killings to make a public display and to make a public display of Haman's already dead sons. She may be vindictive, but I doubt it. More than likely, she's an insider to the palace, and she knew that there were still men on the inside who were determined to kill God's people, the Jews. This killing of the initial 500 in the palace, verse 12, and the additional 300, verse 15, might shock you, and it should shock us at some level, but the more shocking surprise um, was the extent of bitter hostility to the people of God in the very heart of the empire. Equally shocking was a public impaling of already dead bodies, the ten sons of Haman. But this public display would remind all of the empire, 
It would, re it would remind the entire world um, that, that um, things have been, been excuse me, have been reversed. The arch enemy of God's people has been removed, and Mordecai, the friend of the Jews, was in his throne room. There are 800 dead in the citadel of Susa. Haman's 10 sons are toast and were told that in defense of their lives, Jewish people throughout the entire empire, 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India, killed another 75,000 combatants. And as the body count in Susa is described, we discover in verses 12 and 15 that the only ones that were killed were men. And I don't know about you, but bring some relief to me because Haman gave them permission to kill everybody. But they seemed to only kill men. And only men that were combatants. This wasn't revenge. It wasn't greed. It was moderated and it was restrained. It was limited to harm only those who actually attacked the Jews. And what the author's trying to reinforce here is that as this event unfolded, it's ironic, but it's lawful and righteous justice that was executed in the land. And it was not tainted by any personal gain or revenge. We also see that Mordecai's decree in chapter 8 was not fully implemented. The refrain, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder, is repeated three times. Verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. Even though Mordecai's decree allowed it, they didn't do it. This is also a reversal of sorts. Remember back in chapter 3 where we described um, who Agag was? Um, the, the, uh, Esther refers to Haman as uh, Haman the Agagite, enemy of the Jews. Haman is a descendant of Agag, who was a, who was a king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites' uh, claim to fame is that they mercilessly, mercilessly killed women, children, and elderly as they were leaving Egypt on the way to the Promised Land. And as a result, they became the arch enemies of God's people. God had instructed a man by the name of King Saul, you know King Saul, to destroy King Agag, to destroy all of his people, and to destroy their possessions, or plunder, if you will. This was to be God's judgment on the Amalekites, and King Saul, one of, the Mordecai, one of Mordecai's ancestors, was supposed to execute that judgment on Agag and on his people, the Amalekites. Not for any personal gain, and not seizing any of their plunder. Unfortunately, Saul disobeyed God's instruction to, des to destroy King Agag and his people. And to make things worse, Saul secretly kept the spoil and the plunder. Samuel, a prophet at the time, said this to, to Saul. He spoke for the Lord after Saul was disobedient. And this is 1 Samuel 15. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go to vo vote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil or the plunder or their possessions and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul's uh, throne was taken away from him at that moment. Back in chapter 8, verse 11, we saw Mordecai, a descendant of King Saul, authorized the Jews uh, to finish the job. However, the Jewish people would only do what is necessary to preserve the Jewish race by defending themselves and not laying a hand on the plunder. The goal, the goal of this judgment on the Amalekites, or excuse me, on the Jewish people, was not personal gain. 
It wasn't even vengeance. It was preservation of the Jewish people. That's why Mordecai put out this edict. It's salvation or preservation of the Jewish people. And the preservation of the Jews throughout the Old Testament was often a bloody affair. And the book of Esther obviously is no exception. The Savior of the world, as we know him this side of the incarnation, is Jesus. The Savior of the world would come from Abraham's seed. The preservation of Abraham's seed, the Jewish people, wasn't a humanitarian effort. It was a matter of life and death for every human being throughout all time. Because if there were no Jews, there's no Jesus. If there was no Jesus, there was no death and resurrection. If there was no death and resurrection of the perfect Jew, there's no life for any human being. If you are a Christian, you are a beneficiary of the wars waged, the bloody wars waged against the Jewish people to, to preserve, excuse me, to, against the, war, the enemies of God to preserve the Jewish people that preceded the incarnation of Jesus, the perfect Jew. Holy wars, which this was one of them, uh, fought before the incarnation of Jesus were God's people executing the judgment of God on the enemies of God. It's different today. It's changed. There's been a shift in the way God's people, you and I, are to respond to our perceived enemies. Perceived enemies. These type of killings um, of the Old Testament, these holy wars, are not to be repeated. Righteous vengeance is the Lord's. Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 14, and verses 19 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These executions in Esther were a one-off. They were historically necessary, but they were unique. Jesus taught us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 39 through 44, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, him, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In verses 16 through 22 of Esther chapter 9, we're told twice that the Jews got relief from their enemies. And this is a signpost, actually, that one day we too will receive relief from our enemies. Only our enemies are not whoever it is that you dislike or someone you think that will take away your freedoms or someone whose lifestyle and values you disdain. Your enemy is not a politician. Your enemy is not even a sex offender. Your enemy is not a same-sex couple. 
Your enemy's not even Bill Belichick or LeBron James or Bill Gates. In fact, your enemy and my enemy is not flesh and blood at all. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do, not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these truths, these truths that our enemy is spiritual, it's not flesh and blood, these truths that we are to love our enemies, should reframe the way that we treat others in this secular world. We need to fight. We need to learn to fight by declaring, though, and demonstrating the gospel. I don't know what's been up with me lately, but I've been really, like, uh, contemplating um, just the evil and the wickedness of humanity, including myself, maybe at the front of that line. And so we've recently watched, actually binge-watched over the next few weeks, last few weeks, um, two documentaries. One of them was called Waco on the life of David Koresh. The other was called Madoff on the life of Bernie Madoff. The way that they both treated others was absolutely uh, nauseating. David Koresh, of course, had a compound in Waco and he um, would bring families in to follow him, and he had the most, dis- he, he knew the Bible. He memorized 66 books of the Bible. He knew it by heart, and he twisted it, and he distorted it, and he destroyed families and their view of God in the way that uh, maybe not many people have. And Bernie Madoff was the kingpin of the largest Ponzi scheme in history, $50 billion dollars that he would boldface lie to people that they were getting a certain return. In reality, they were getting no return, and he was taking that money and spending it on his life. And he wasn't just getting the money of millionaires and billionaires. He was getting the money of little old ladies who had no money left. Were they guilty of horrible crimes against the weak, oppressed, and naive? Absolutely. Should they have been tried and suffered consequences of their crime? No doubt. Are they the enemy? They're not the enemy. There's a doctor in northern Colorado just recently that hasn't even hit the the headlines yet, which is shocking to me, who was just arrested for being part of a child pornography ring. There's nothing in me. There's there's, There's no offense that for me personally gets me so riled up where I want to start throwing things. Is he the enemy? He's actually not. Is a corrupt policeman the enemy? No. Are the people that are rioting and doing crazy things in Denver, in Portland, the enemy? No, they're not. Only in the end, only when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead will we know who the true enemies of God were. For now, our calling is gospel proclamation and gospel living and loving. Let me put it another way. Our job, this side of incarnation, is declaring and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam, 
He's a serial killer who's been serving three life sentences for brutally murdering helpless young ladies on the East Coast. A dear friend of mine, Eric Lawyer, who was in our service a few weeks ago, was a pastor in our network, befriended David Be Berkowitz over the last few years and goes to visit him once a month. But before my friend Eric befriended, befriended him, somebody else befriended him and determined to go to that prison where David Berkowitz was and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. You know what happened? David Berkowitz is now a friend of God. David Berkowitz deserves everything that the American law can throw at him. But he is no longer an enemy of God. And he has a ministry behind the four walls of the prison over the last three plus decades that rivals the ministry of any church in the world today where he's preaching the gospel and people are coming to Christ. We don't know who the enemies of God will be on that judgment day. If Saul would have been killed as an enemy of Christ, Saul of Tarsus, we would have been wrong. If Judas was thought to be a friend of Christ, we would have been wrong. Many people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are prisoners of a dark kingdom. And we can fight for their freedom by declaring war. Not against them, but for them. How do we do that? Let me submit to you that Jeremiah 29, 4, 7 is helpful. Thus says the Lord of hosts, first of all, I want to remind you, we're exiles. This isn't our home. We have a heavenly home. The Jewish people living in Babylon and Persia were not, they were exiles. Their home was not there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and have daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pray. That's how we fight. We pray. We get our hands dirty. We don't stay in our holy huddle and point fingers at those so-called enemies that are out there outside the four walls. We get our hands dirty. We take people who are not like us, who have, don't have our hope, to coffee. We engage in refugee ministries. We serve in foster care. We go to the prisons. We actually find out who the sex offenders are in Windsor. Who are hated. And we ask if we can, can I have coffee with you? And can I share the love of Jesus with you? We need to get close enough where people can smell the aroma of Christ on us. We need to stop arguing politics and opinions and policies with those that have no hope. Argue them with me. Like, I'm not going to get mad at you. We can disagree. Let's go have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, a beer. But stop arguing politics, policies, and opinions with people that have no hope at all. 
We need to look for opportunities to lay our lives down on behalf of those who might call us their enemy. And then we need to lay our lives down for them, just as Jesus did for us when we were enemies. We recognize that in Christ we're already dead, so there, actually there's nothing to lose. Would you look at chapter 9, verse 20, through chapter 10, verse 3 with me as we look at reversal remembered? And Mordecai received these things and letters to all the Jews who were in all provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that has been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to, to one another and gifts to the poor. So the, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he had, excuse me, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, at the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obliga obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep those two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of those days cease among, among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might in the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th and the 15th days of Adar, the 12th month, year after year. So what were the things that Mordecai recorded? Everything he saw God do, all the reversals, everything. Esther's courage, Haman's edict and Haman's de demise. Mordecai's exaltation and Mordecai's edict. Enemies defeated, Jews saved. And I love this in verse 22. If you're able to write in your Bible, I would highlight it. I would put an exclamation by it. I would circle it. How did all these, all these dire circumstances, verse 22, had been turned for them? Had been turned for them. It wasn't to their credit. 
that God, and it isn't mentioned once in 10 chapters, caused all these reversals to happen. They didn't save themselves or reverse their direction. God turned the circumstances for them. And Mordecai recorded it. And I want to encourage uh, particularly some of you younger families to do something that Nancy and I never did. Well, I wish we did. That we, uh, back in the day, Nancy and I, uh, I remember had lunch at Tom and Don Harkis' house, um, who are our primary mentors. And as we sat down, there are two boys. Uh, there, was a, there was a recipe box in the middle of the table, and they asked one of their two boys to take a card out of the middle of the recipe box and read it. And you know what that box was full of? It was full of reversals. It was, it was full of answered prayers. It was full of memories of God's faithfulness. And as they experienced it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, um, they, would, they would document it, and they would put it in the box. And then every meal, they would pull one out, and they'd be reminded of God's faithfulness, of God's promises. A pretty simple thing to do, and I think you would be blessed by it. In verses 20 and 28, Mordecai and Esther sent letters out ob obligating the Jewish people to keep the 14th day and the 15th day of the 12th month as a time to remember and commemorate and observe Purim, P-U-R-I-M. What's Purim? It's from the word P-U-R. And if you remember back in chapter 3, where Haman had determined to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. So he cast lots, or he rolled the dice, and it was called Pur, P-U-R. But God turned that on its head. And so he, he changed that, that, word, that word for dice or lot into a holiday called Purim. It turned out to be the day of salvation for the Jews and destruction for the enemy. And these days, as we see here in chapter 10, will be days of feasting and gladness, a time of giving gifts and food to one another and to the poor. And when I read that, I went, well, like, can't I just feast on my own? Can't it just be me and my family? And do I have to give gifts? Not only to my family and food, but to, to the poor. Like, why is that even necessary? And as I looked at it, it's so obvious that God, by His kindness and His grace, generously reversed the trajectory of His people from death to life. And when we understand how massive, uh, how, how massive His generosity is to us, we can't help but want to respond generously to others. We've been blessed to be a blessing to other people. This is a spiritual reality. We've been blessed by others. We've been blessed by God so that we can bless others by declaring the gospel. It's also a physical reality, especially for those of us that live in northern Colorado. We've been blessed beyond measure financially and with what we have. And we've been blessed not just to accumulate and acquire, but so that we can bless others. It seems as though there were two letters that were sent out. Two letters sent to the Jews obliging them to remember, observe, and commemorate the days of Purim. And then the first, the first letter calls for days of feasting and gladness while exchanging gifts and food, verses 20 through 22. But there seems to be a second letter that goes out in verse 31 that instructs them to fast and lament. Now it's getting weird. Like if I'm going to rejoice and remember um, God's reversing my life, the, re the direction. Why would I fast and lament? I would, I would submit this. In order for the people of God then and now to observe and commemorate the days of salvation fully, we need to remember them fully. 
And that doesn't mean just the victory. It, remembers, it, it, it means remembering the weeping and the lamenting on the streets when the Jewish people were under the irrevocable decree of death. It's remembering their fasting when they cried out for God to spare them through Esther mediating on their behalf. Remember, he answered their prayer when all seemed dire and hopeless. You see, true heartfelt feasting with gladness cannot be obtained without knowing the mercy and the grace of God. And that's actually the problem with Big C Church in the world today is people are very willing to pray a prayer for the forgiveness of their sins and they forget that it's a call to die. It's a call to pick up our cross, that our lives are no longer our own. Salvation cannot be fully celebrated without a clear understanding of what you were saved from and what you are saved to. Fasting should come before feasting and lamenting comes before our rejoicing in gladness. When you think about the horror that ha needed to happen and the number of people killed in order for the Jews to live, it should cause lament. There's actually um, nothing in here that should cause us to rejoice in the death of 75,810 people. Now, we can rejoice in the victory of Christ and rejoice in his sovereignty that we knew that needed to happen in order for the Jews to be saved, in order for Jesus to come. But it should cause some level of lamenting. So Mordecai and Esther instruct the Jews to not forget these reversals. As I mentioned in the little video I put out on the newsletter on communion, forgetting, excuse me, not forgetting is more than simply remembering. In our Western culture, remembering means recollecting or recalling to mind something that is a no, no longer a present reality. However, in the Bible, a call to remember is a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept where we recalibrate our lives according to what is being remembered. A call to remember in the Bible is a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept where we recalibrate our lives according to what's being remembered. When we remember God's mercy, we're going to become more merciful. When we remember God's blessing, we're going to have a greater desire to bless others. When we remember we were once enemies, we will treat our so-called enemies differently. When we remember that we are God's people and He is our God, we will, we will more boldly identify with Him and live in submission and obedience to all of His commands, especially as it pertains to loving other people. When we're fearful and lacking hope, when God seems to be silent and invisible, we need to remember. Remember God's promises. Remember God's character. Remember his documented faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. Remember who it is that he says you are and who you belong to. And all of this should cause us to recalibrate our lives to what's being remembered. Remembering is a call to action. It's not just looking back at the cross and remembering Jesus' sacrifice 
It's remembering what that actually means. What it meant then, what it means today, and what it means tomorrow. We see in verse, chapter 10, verse 3, that Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. This two-day war paved the way for a greater, more complete peace that comes from Jesus. If there was no two-day war, there's no Jesus. We are at peace with God, and we can have peace knowing that there's no ultimate harm that can come to us, and He only has our welfare for us, only good for us. Additionally, the peace that came after the Jews defeated their enemies is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the time when the peace of the kingdom of God will settle in a new heaven and a new earth. A time when war, death, disease, and darkness itself will be driven out of the world. Esther's final chapter shows that the book's reversal brought to its logical and empathetic conclusion. Not only, that, not only in that Haman is dead, and so are his sons, and not only are his sons dead, they're hanged publicly for all to see, and not only is there one day of killing in Susa, but there's also another. Mordecai's rising matched Haman's falling. And he is... He is um, he has the highest honor at the end of this book. He's advanced by the king. He's second in rank to Ahasuerus. He's the greatest among the Jews. And we're meant to feel the full weight of the reversal that has occurred. But don't let it stop there. How can we ever feel the full weight of the fact that the Son of God descended to the depths of death on the cross? so that we, his people, might be raised to unimaginable and eternal rejoicing in his very presence. We remember the grand reversal narrative of the Bible. And one of the ways we do that, as you guessed it, is we celebrate communion together. I want to say right up front, Jesus says that we are to remember his death through the Lord's Supper or communion until he returns. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, um, we are stoked that you're here. But the communion cup is not for you yet. At the cross... Jesus secured a reversal for you and me. You were enemies, and now you're friend. You were lost, but now you're found. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. No heartbeat, but now you're alive. There was nothing before the, before the cross. There was only wrath left for you. The full fourths of the wrath of a just and holy God is what was reserved for you. But because of the cross, because of the incarnation, because of the cross, there's no wrath left for you. That Jesus drank the cup of wrath dry and there's only blessing and welfare and good for you, his child. 
You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The lives that we once lived for ourselves, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Him who redeemed us. You see, the communion table or the communion packets, if you will, um, is not a place for simply remembering in the way that maybe you've remembered before. That every time you participate in the Lord's Supper, you should be changed. He's not physically present in this, but He's spiritually present. And when you drink of the wine or the juice and eat of the bread, it's a vivid reminder of the reversal of the trajectory of your life. You're dead, you're al- you, were, you were dead, now you're alive. But also a trajectory on how to live. If you're caught in any sin right now that is keeping you from submitting and obeying everything that God has asked you to do. If that's not your desire, we don't do it perfectly, but if you don't have a desire right now, if you've got sin in your life that is hidden and unconfessed, He's waiting there with open arms. Confess it to Him before you partake. Thank Him for the reversal. And ask Him by His grace and the power of His Spirit to help you live a life of reversal in submission to Him. So would you just bow your head just for a minute. Do business with the Lord. Thank Him, confess to Him, cry out to Him, and we'll partake together in just a minute.